everyone. It's time for another episode of the Macrovisor podcast with Aisha and Mayhem. Aisha, how's it going? Good. Um, so far, so good. Hasn't been a very good two weeks. Um, seems like the world has been a little rocky, but it seems like we do have solutions to the problems and uh, let's get into that. Yeah, absolutely. So we've had a number of bank failures or take-unders that have happened. We had the Silicon Valley Bank failure, the Signature Bank being closed by regulators after a loss of confidence in management, and we had the situation with Credit Suisse. So let's just quickly recap for everyone out there kind of what all has happened here, right? With Silicon Valley Bank, we had ostensibly a run on the bank. There were too many deposits to satisfy. There was that mismatch, as you've mentioned, between their assets and their liabilities, both in terms of duration, but also in terms of the ability to even get some of those assets in a liquid manner to cash out of them. And then we had the signature bank uh, situation where basically FDIC said, we don't have confidence in you and your management, which included former legislator and pro-regulator uh, Barney Frank, which was it was our former House representative. It's very interesting to see someone who built Dodd-Frank actually on the wrong side of a bank closure, but, you know, it happened. And then we have Credit Suisse, where some of the causes are a little bit mysterious, but there's been signs along the way. That's right. So I think with Credit Suisse, a bit of the problem started with, you know, when Archegos blew up. Um, they did have a lot of losses over there. And some of those losses led to, you know, trading losses. Um, and to a certain extent, similar to Silicon Valley, um, there was some loss of faith over there as well. So their trading desks uh, or their tra trading desk, rather, um, took quite a substantial amount of losses earlier this year. And uh, there were some, I wouldn't say misrepresentation, but I think some of the items were not properly accounted for either. And that brought on a whole series of, you know, questions with regard to how they were reporting their accounts. Yeah, that's a concern. And we saw some of their counterparties actually begin to pull back and say they didn't want to trade with them or they wanted to restrict trading with them. So that's uh, certainly not a vote of confidence. We saw their credit default swaps start to really rise and then eventually reached records that were beyond what they saw during the great financial crisis. And the ADR, the U.S. listed stock, you know, kind of continually hitting these lower lows and then all time lows eventually. So there were some signs in the market, too that something was brewing here. And yet we, we're not able to quite put our finger on what all may have happened. But what we can say is that Credit Suisse has been rife with scandals and mismanagement for some time, maybe about a decade. So there were some signs along the way they were trying to restructure the bank. And there was some effort going into trying to cut some of the areas where they weren't making money to focus more on wealth management. And it, it just doesn't seem to have been able to pan out for the, uh, the Swiss behemoth, one of two global Swiss banks, as we've talked about, where, you know, they're really the two most important. And now it's interesting. There's there's similarities between sort of the J.P. Morgan Bear Stern marriage in the sense that it was, you know, a buy under and it was encouraged by regulators. But there's big differences here, too, because J.P. Morgan is obviously infinitely bigger than Bear Stearns. And yet UBS is a peer 
of Credit Suisse. So this creates a lot of concentration of risk in one Swiss bank. And that that is an interesting departure. I mean, this is going to be the only really global player in Switzerland now. It is. And what's more interesting is this was one of the strategically important banks, right? The SIBs, as we yes. like to call it. And it was one of the global SIBs. And therefore, losing one of those SIBs is not great for the global economy either. And part of that is what has led to, you know, further stress in the banking system, further stress throughout Europe. I mean, we saw shares of European banks give up all their gains this morning, like gains from the last few months. Um, And there's now a perception in the market that things are not what they seem. And something like you know, Credit Suisse going under, and it's it's a bank with a long history, long heritage, and something like this being taken over in such a manner um, just goes to tell you that you know it's that same story all over again. No one is too big to fail. Yeah, that's a very good point. And so, speaking of too big to fail, let's talk a little bit about the response here. What's happened? What authorities have done so far in response to this overarching theme of increasing risk? In the US, here we have the sort of fund created to help to backstop banks by the Treasury and the FDIC. We have the Federal Reserve that's that's created this sort of super discount window. Um, and then we also, and I think they pledged up to something like $600 billion of potential support um, as needed. And then also we have the... Um, Treasury backstop uh, for the funding program, which is about $25 billion. Um, however, the Fed has sort of alluded to the fact that they're probably not going to be using this, even though, you know, the Treasury has pledged it from the Exchange Stabilization Fund. And then finally, over the weekend, what we got was, you know, opening up the swap lines to various central banks. So the Fed opened up their swap lines. I mean, so the swap lines were always open, but, you know, they made more available. And- daily settlements, which makes, you know, the interest on the swaps come down quite a bit. Um, so they're trying to, as you've rightly pointed out, they've try, they're trying to make sure that the liquidity in the system does not sort of dry up. Right. And it's interesting because there's been this concern growing about liquidity. You can see it in the way bonds are trading. You can see it in how illiquid some of these key credit markets, even U.S. Treasuries have become, some of them reaching your all-time lows of order book depth and with the move index hitting all-time highs. It's a situation that tells us there's a lot of concern both about how things are going to trade. Either directions moves tend to be extreme, whether it's bonds selling down after they've had a risk-off rally where people are fleeing into the longer end of the yield curve because they're concerned. And we've seen days of up to close to 3% higher in price in the 30-year bond. Pretty extraordinary stuff. But even last week, I think it was, or maybe the week prior, but recently, I believe it was last week, 
The two-year note also had an increase in price, the second largest of which in about 40 years, the first being the 1987 move. And so there's some extraordinary volatility in these treasury markets. There's the sort of moves that have reverberations into other markets here. And this is a key issue as well. So we do see central banks stepping in and the Fed trying to make sure there's not any kind of dollar funding crisis. I saw you had tweeted about this earlier. I'd love for you to talk a little bit more about this because so much of the world's debt is denominated in dollars. So to make sure that we don't get a dollar funding crisis or a shortage of dollars, that's part of why they're doing this, right? Why is that so important? Well, so the dollar is the reserve currency of the world. So whether we like it or not, it is the safe haven currency. And if you see what's going on with oil and with gold, it's, you know, we're seeing very clear signs that the market is pricing in a recession. So gold is peaking <laughs> or going to all-time highs again, uh, crossing $2,000 today. And then oil, on the other hand, is coming down, crossing $65 um, I think it hit 64 something today. So just tells you that the market is pricing in a recession. This happens, basically, everybody wants to, you know, buy dollars for safekeeping, right? And because dollars are required for trade, dollars are required for, you know, funding, uh, most of global debt is priced in dollars. And this is not just for countries, but also corporates. So even in Dubai, we give out loans in dollars, many of them coming from Credit Suisse even. So um, in a situation like this, if you have a crowdfunding, the dollar is just going to go up, right? So you'll have a situation where, you know, the dollar index goes to 110, 120, um, and so on and so forth. And that's not something that the Fed wants because that makes it very expensive for the U.S. to generate credit. It makes, exp makes it expensive for households. And you have another crisis there. Um, so they want to make sure that, you know, there is dollar availability and this keeps the price of the dollar, let's say, uh, kind of, you know, stable and low. Um, the other thing I believe is, and this is probably, you know, one of the other reasons that they did this was because they're going to raise rates. And I'm sure we'll talk about that in a little bit. But when you raise rates, the dollar goes up, right? <clears throat> And so one thing that they're trying to do is make sure they stabilize the economy, they stabilize um, liquidity, they stabilize uh, the dollar before they can raise rates again. Yeah, and I think that's a really important point and something that we'll touch on very shortly here. The next thing that I wanted to talk a little bit about is sort of why this is so much different than QE. Because the narrative has become, and you wrote a great article about this, so I hope people have been able to take advantage of it, but I think it's worth a discussion too, that this is so much different because it's not adding a lot of liquidity to asset markets directly. This is adding some liquidity to banks that need it at a disadvantageous cost, right? When you go in as a bank and let's say you have a 10-year note at 2% on your balance sheet, right? And you're going to the Fed because these things are trading at 70 cents or 80 cents on the dollar to what you bought them and you've got depositors that need funds. So you go in there and they say, okay, we'll give you this loan at 
2.39%. So you've got this 2.39% carry cost. This isn't adding liquidity. It's not promoting risk-taking. It's not creating an environment, anything like what that that was. You want to talk a little bit more about why it's so different? Because I think it's an important discussion to have right now with so much misleading information prevailing. Sure. So I'll just explain it in very basic terms. So let's say you had $100 in your bank account. You, Mayhem, had $100 in your bank account. And the bank took this $100 cash and put it in bonds or lent it out or did something with it. Whatever they did with it, that $100 is no longer cash in your bank account, right? And But when you hear that FRC is going, you know, is, is having trouble or when Silicon Valley went down and Signature Bank went down. Now you are thinking, oh, oh, I need to go and get my money out of my bank because you know what? What if my bank goes down as well? I want to put it in a safer bank or I want to, you know, put it under my mattress. I don't know. So you go to the bank and you withdraw your cash. And this is what starts a bank run. Okay, so what the Treasury is trying to sorry, what the Fed is trying to do is make sure that that situation doesn't happen. So what they're trying to say is, hey, Mayhem, don't be afraid. Your bank can come and borrow from me. Okay, so your deposit is perfectly fine. So in a sense, they are giving you the illusion of liquidity. So it's not necessary that your bank is actually going and borrowing. And they're likely not wanting to borrow. But the borrowing that we saw from the discount window was a stopgap solution. And the the amount that they borrowed from the discount window, this discount window is, it's got a 90-day term. So, but even if they move it to the one-year funding, trust me, they're not going to keep it open for one year because they don't need to put that cash in the bank as long as they have given you the idea that your cash is safe and you're not going to take it out. of this is to sort of give people the idea that, you know what, Um, oh, Mayhem says his bank is safe because the Fed is going to back his bank. Aisha thinks, why don't I use Mayhem's bank? I'll put some of my cash back there. So in a sense, you're not actually lending this money out. You're just making sure that the money is there in case Mayhem wants to withdraw it. And in another way, you're actually attracting more deposits into the bank. And then you can repay the Fed if you have borrowed from them. So you're actually drawing liquidity out of the market versus actually pumping liquidity into the market. So the Fed has pumped liquidity into the banks temporarily, but not into the market. And that's why this is not QE. The moment the liquidity reaches the market, that's when it becomes QE. But if you mayhem, had money in the bank and you had not withdrawn this during the biggest bull market that we've ever seen and put it in Bitcoin or other investments, what makes me think you're going to take it out now and put it in investments? Why would you? That is your savings and you'll want to keep it as savings. The only reason you will withdraw it is if you are uncertain that the bank will give you your money back and the bank will go under. So, People are mistaking this as QE because they think that the money will be invested. I don't see any reason for the money to be invested. It's just putting money back where it was supposed to be. 
it was always supposed to be cash in the bank. It was never meant to be lent out or anything else. And sorry, so, but this is all just very temporary. And the banks, they have plenty of ways to shore up that capital that they've borrowed from the Fed by simply raising the rates that they provide on deposits to attract new clients. And, and you know, if you're able to go out and say, hey, two and a half, three percent bank account, savings, whatever, CDs, whatever they're able to offer, then you can start to repay the Fed and you have a more advantageous rate and you have a better match between your assets and your liabilities in terms of the duration and also in terms of, you know, what you're paying and what you're being paid. And so it feels like what the Fed is kind of telling banks here is, okay, guys, we'll give you a facility so you don't fail. But what you should all be trying to do is raise the rates on your deposits and attract more business. And they will do that because don't forget, they're paying the Fed 4.39 today, right? If they take it, if, if they take a loan today, they're paying 4.39. Right. Whereas if they take a deposit from me, they can get away with paying 2% or 3%. So it's cheaper for them to actually raise deposits in the market and pay the Fed back versus keeping that loan going for a year, right? Right, exactly. That's one. And the second thing is the only way they can raise that deposit from me is if they can tell me that the Fed's got my back and I am okay as a bank. So please come put your deposits with me. But that opens up a whole new question, right? Because when we heard from Janet Yellen, she testified and and said something along the lines of that not all banks are backstop, that you do have to be systemically important and that you have to go through this sort of multi-bureaucracy vetting process between the Treasury, the White House, the FDIC, and the Fed. So it suggests that smaller banks are more vulnerable. If you're not important enough, you may just be allowed to fail and your depositors may not get above their 250K FDIC insured amount. So, but that's the reason why these smaller banks are not supposed to take in deposits of more than 250,000. They are supposed to cap their deposit per account at 250,000. So if they're taking in more than that and they're not an SIB, then they shouldn't be backstopped. Right. I mean, it's it's you're break in in a sense you're kind of breaking the rules here. So if you're breaking the rules, you will, uh, you know, be penalized for it. But should the clients be penalized for it? They should not, and which is why they are backstopping all the deposits right now for Silicon Valley. But they're also putting out a warning to the rest of the people or the rest of the banks, saying, "Hey, you keep breaking the rules, and you're going to pay for it. We're not going to help you." So speaking of Silicon Valley Bank, let's just flash back here. I think it's about three and a half, four years to 2018 when there was a lobbying effort to try to rewrite parts of Dodd-Frank. And one of the parts that they rewrote was the size of a bank required to be supervised and and yes. really scrutinized. And back then, before this revision, it was $50 billion dollars. After it was $250 billion and Silicon Valley Bank had $211 billion of assets at the end of 2022. Is it not a little bit ironic that part of the reason this bank failed is its own lobbying efforts to gut the sort of supervision that could have saved it from its own mismanagement? It is ironic. And what's what's even funnier is like the more you look into this bank, the more you realize 
or the more you start to think how they didn't fail sooner. I mean, they did. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm sorry, but they, they they were very mismanaged and greedy. I've been using this word a lot to describe the bank, but honestly, they've just been greedy about the whole situation. And um, <clears throat> it's it, it, it's just sad. It is sad. And it, it's, it was unnecessary for this to happen. And, you know, we don't want to make light of what happened in the sense that there was a lot of startups and other parts of the sort of venture capital ecosystem that were hurt badly by this. And whatever mm -hmm. the resolution may be, it's still mm -hmm. going to leave lingering effects. There's going to be less lending to these early stage companies. And look, I mean, at the end of the day, we know the Fed identified what they called sort of froth in various parts of the market. And that would probably include all the sort of crypto stuff and the startups and the blend between the two and the intersection of that and, and venture capital and the lofty valuations we had in 2021. So th this is a not all that undesirable side effect of Fed policy, isn't it? I mean, they did want to curb this stuff and it's because it was creating a lot of this these these sort of pockets of wealth bubbles that were then bringing more and more people out of the labor force as well. You know, if you get rich enough, you're not necessarily going to be productively contributing. And a lot of people did on investing in startups, investing or speculating in crypto and, you know, all, and, and sort of early stage companies and pre-IPO companies and private equity, et cetera. There was a lot of asset bubbles, maybe perhaps the most prolific multi-asset bubble in history that's being unwound here. And so there is some pain uh, that's going to be here. So we don't mean to make light of it. But important to talk about it for what it is in the sense that, you know, this is some of the stuff that Powell has been talking about, has been aiming for in order to subdue asset inflation, real world inflation, and some of the imbalances in the economy. Unfortunately, <clears throat> the Fed's unwinding could have taken a smoother path, but, you know, something like Silicon Valley will now bring a very harsh reality to a lot of these smaller companies. And it has repercussions for every bank um, and a lot of the small businesses in terms of, you know, tightening financial conditions and, you know, putting people out of work. And it, it, it's just sort of fast tracked a lot of these issues. And it need not have been this way. It, it, it could have been smoother, let's say. Yeah, I agree. I think so as well. So, you know, one of the things that is happening is there's there's a, an increasing amount of uncertainty about the Fed's trajectory, their policy path, right? Where are they going to go with rates? Where are they going to go with the balance sheet runoff? There's some talk of cuts, of course. Every time anything happens, there's the immediate discussion of a pivot. There's other talks of a pause. And then there's still, and I think this is the most rational discourse, talk of at least another hike. Maybe a couple more than that. And I think that it makes more sense for the Fed to hike again. 25 bips would be suitable. They don't, I think, and I'm curious of your view on this, want to send the signal to the market that they don't know what to do or that things are getting worse by not hiking at all or worse yet cutting. I think that would be seen as a sign of fear 
from the Fed, think you know, broadcasting to the world that this is much bigger and it's a contagion risk, and we're going to kind of pull back after being very adamant only a week ago, and at that, you know, really uh, that that this was going to be the policy outcome of more hikes ahead. So it will be an interesting meeting, right? What do you think, though? Do you think we get another twenty-five bips and maybe some more hiking after that? Do you see, think we'll see the Fed stay the course? I think they will stay the course because they have to. Fighting inflation is still the number one priority, and it should be because we're still seeing, you know, acceleration in certain parts of the CPI and the PCE. And this is pretty scary for the Fed because the last thing they want is for, you know, inflation to become entrenched. Uh, We've said this many times, but inflation hurts uh, people who live paycheck to paycheck. And the Fed's goal is to ease pain for the masses versus thinking about people who are just taking you know credit on the top one to ten percent you know um so i think they've put in all these backstops in place so that they can tighten uh, so there is no perception that you know the economy is in dire trouble and it's going to crumble or it's going to break and as long as you have unemployment still signaling below, you know, 4%, as long as you still have positive GDP growth, um, the Fed will continue to tighten. Now, last time, say 5.1%, which brings us to like a terminal rate of 5.25 at the upper end. But I think that they will revise this upwards to 55 now. I think we'll see the new uh, summary of economic projections coming out with the Fed meeting on Wednesday. It's quite likely that, you know, they do 25, 25, 25 and take it up to five and a half. Um, Pause there and uh, perhaps think about easing in 2024. And the reason I say this is because they put in this term funding program for exactly one year, which is March 2024. It expires in March 2024. And I think they're giving themselves that time, that one year time um, to hike, pause, see the lag defects, see the effects take place, run its course through the economy. And then by March 2024, they'll have a clearer idea whether they still need to keep rates the way they are or whether they can cut. So I think there is some significance to uh, this program being one year. So until March, 2024, because that, that might be sort of the deciding or the decision making time, let's say, as to whether they should keep it there, high ease, what's next. And I think that's a really important point that you've made regarding the um, reasoning behind what they're doing and how that may impact their future path. I think it's being seen as the opposite by many that this is, oh, this is a sign the Fed's ready to make a big U-turn. But I I agree 100% with what you're saying. And I see it the same way that what they've done is they've built runway. They can continue to do what they're doing because they're easing some of the strain. They're improving the optics of what's happening to try to shore up confidence. And what does that do? It gives them a little bit more cushion to keep that process of tightening both by running off their balance sheet and raising rates and holding, like you said. And, you know, this is something that 
whether we want to to see it or not is going to happen. We haven't had any bank failures in in two years. So it's very likely that there's going to be some of these imbalances worked out, that there's going to be more pain, as Powell talked about in his Jackson Hole speech and since, in this process of trying to solve inflation. And there's another important part of this, and that is the part where we really do need businesses and government to come together and try to start to increase supply supply of labor in the part of the government, but in terms of government and businesses working together, also of energy, of key metals, of agricultural crops that are in short supply. There's a lot of areas where there's mismatch of supply and demand if demand begins to normalize. And that's a concern that I think we also need to see uh, addressed so that the Fed can both do their job, but when they take their foot off the brakes and start to put them on the gas again during the next round of cuts and potentially other forms of easing, that we don't see demand rise back up and, and sort of choke off the available supply and see prices really start to rise with a high rate of change again. I feel like that's something that's not being discussed enough. I think it should be maybe an ongoing theme as we continue to cover what's happening in the economy here. And it's something that we'll write about this sort of transcendence from an era of abundance of capital, of resources, of labor to an era of scarcity. Thank you so much for supporting our podcast. Consider subscribing to our website too. You'll get those updates at macrovisor.com where we're regularly writing articles about the market, the economy, kind of going out from the big picture and zooming into some of the details that are happening and why they're important to us. And look forward to this podcast every Tuesday, particularly as there are important events unfolding. And it seems like there's no shortage of those these days, huh, Aisha? No, certainly not. So do you have any closing thoughts for our audience before we go? Uh, trade safe. Uh, don't take unnecessary amounts of risk, particularly before the Fed meeting or even after. <laughs> this isn't a time to be super bold. I think we will get a time soon enough to start buying hand over fist, but that's not right now. Great thoughts. Well, everyone, thank you again for tuning in. We'll catch you next week on Tuesday. <laughs>